You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. All right, good morning, East Point Church. How are you guys? Good to be with you. Welcome. We are starting a new series this morning, and so I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 3. If you're using one of the blue and white ones that we provide in the back, we're on page 489. And welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, My name is Sam. I get the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. And if we haven't met yet, we got to fix that, all right? We love, love, love connecting as a church. This is not an event. This is not a venue that you're in today. You have just stepped into a family gathering, and so welcome. Uh, If you have yet to make any connections in this family, if you have yet to come to our first step lunch, come. Lunch is going to be bomb this afternoon, and uh, we would love to have you guys. Seriously, come over to the house. You can grab the address uh, from the connect counter, and uh, we'll have a good time getting to know each other, telling you a little bit more about the church, and it'll be fun. So welcome, welcome. Like I said, we're beginning a new series, and so I just want to begin by asking you this question. I'm just curious not trying to start a fight here. I'm not trying to cause division. I'm just wondering, how do you feel about crowds? Oh, 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 you feel strongly. Okay. There are two types of people in this world, aren't there? Those who love crowds and those who are crazy. No, no I'm kidding. Those who love crowds and those who enjoy them. My father, how many of you would say uh, you do not enjoy crowds? Okay, a little bit uncomfortable. You're like, we live on the eastern shore. No, duh. There are people like you, like my dad. My dad hates crowds. You see, he grew up in New York City. He was a taxi driver. He drove tractor trailers through the corridors of Brooklyn. Dude, that dude has been done with crowds since 2008. You could not pay my dad to go back into the city and be around that, you know. Me, on the other hand, I'm not like him. I don't get anxious. I don't feel nervous. I don't feel trapped by the crowds. I feel energized. How many of you are with me? Yes, my people, right? There is something about all of these people coming together and the energy of that moment. Love it. There's nothing like seeing a crowd come together. 40,000 people packed into one square mile because of their love for their team, right? Ah, Come on, guys. No one? The crack of the bat, right? And 40,000 people lose their mind as they go crazy in unison. There's nothing like the energy of this crowd. There's nothing like a sea of people coming together for an opportunity to witness a musical performance that can change the world. How many of you enjoy a good concert, right? How many people are packing into this venue because they want to be a part of a moment, that they'll remember forever. There's nothing more moving, there's nothing more exciting to me than seeing hundreds of thousands of people crammed into this space because they want to witness a historic moment. You know what I think of when I see this picture? I go, what does that guy do when he has to use the bathroom? Anybody else think that? I'm like, I don't see a single porta potty up in this picture. But look at that, the crowd, you can feel the energy, you can feel the buzzing as they gather together this mass of humanity to be a part of this moment. There's nothing like an entire city 
coming together, right? Stepping out into the streets to celebrate their beloved Super Bowl champions, such as the Philadelphia Eagles, and the crowd was wild. <laughs> but was it a boo? <laughs> Come on, man. There's nothing, nothing like seeing a crowd of people come together because they want to hear a speaker. They want to be in the presence of words that will inspire and move them and lead and be a catalyst for change. And so the same picture, but, you know, in the 60s, people coming together because they realized what they were a part of was history. They were hearing words that would be quoted for decades to come. How do you feel about a crowd? You see, friends, the phenomena of a crowd is nothing new. Crowds have been forming for centuries. As a matter of fact, there was a crowd that was gathered right here on the beach of a sea in the Middle East called the Sea of Galilee. A couple of thousand of years ago, a crowd came together because they wanted to get a glimpse. Not of a sports team, not of a musical performance. They wanted to get a glimpse of a man who is changing the world. And for the next few moments, we're going to go back to ground zero. Friends, I don't know how you feel about crowds, but for the next few moments, we are going to go back. We are going to enter into the crowd. And as we are here in the crowd, we are going to see what all the commotion is about. I want to see what is all this to do that is happening. And as we get into the crowd, we are going to see this man whom everyone is flocking to. We're going to see him. We're going to hear him. And he's going to teach us something. You see, this man who is drawing a crowd is about to teach us that there's actually something better than a crowd. This man who is drawing people in crazy numbers is going to teach us that there's actually something more important than that moment. And by the end of our passage today, friends, we're going to be presented with a choice. Will you stay and experience the moment in the crowd? Or will you follow Jesus to something infinitely better than the moment? Are you going to stay in the crowd or are you going to follow Jesus to where he is? And so are you ready? You ready to go back to the crowd? Did you use the bathroom before we get stuck in the throng here? I hope so, right? No porta potties in here. Here we go, starting in chapter 3. This is God's word for us, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons." He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, 
to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is our passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we spend the next few moments in your word, would you open our eyes? Help us to see Jesus more clearly. Help us to understand your plan in this world more thoroughly. Lord, would you send us out from here different than how we came in? We're yours, Lord. This is your time. Do with it what you will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's how we do it. We like to have a passage, and then we're going to go back to the beginning and just break it down line by line and see what's happening, okay? And so we go back to the beginning of our story, and we find that Jesus is withdrawing like many of you have this summer, he is withdrawing to the beach. He is going to the sea. Maybe he's trying to create some space. He's trying to take some rest from all of the ministry. But it doesn't matter because even as he withdraws with his disciples, Mark tells us that great crowds followed him. Couldn't escape it. Everywhere he goes, they are mobbing him, friends. Great crowds. And so sometimes we picture Jesus like he's sitting with lambs in a field and there's like seven people in the painting and there's just so much space and it's just this beautiful idyllic picture. I picture it more like the paparazzi are mobbing around him and they just want to touch him and it's just crazy. Guys, this crowd is so great. The crowd is so thick that Jesus is like, hey, disciples, we need to literally take a step back. We need to like create space. Why don't you put a boat? I will stand and teach from a boat. That way I'm not crushed by the crowd. He goes, let's do this lest they crush me. This is crazy, friends. This is a crowd just like in one of the pictures we saw earlier. And as we look at the crowd, As we check out the people who are in the crowd, we realize something remarkable here. We realize that Jesus' influence is geographic, not demographic. His influence is geographic, not demographic. Here's what I mean, right? We've seen crowds before. Look at the makeup of the crowd. Do you remember in our last series, we saw John the Baptist draw crowds? Remember? Let's go back. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized. John was drawing a crowd from Judea and Jerusalem. But look at Jesus' crowd here. The great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. It's the same. And Edomia. And from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre, and from around Tyre and Sidon. You see, John the Baptist, he was drawing Jews. He was drawing a very particular demographic, but Jesus is making a geographic influence. He's drawing a crowd from all the surrounding regions. There is something about Jesus that appeals to people of every ethnicity, every culture, every demographic. And so whether they're from the city or from the country, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, it doesn't matter. There is something universally attractive about Jesus. What he's providing, it surpasses the preferences of a particular subculture. He's doing something here that is fundamentally attractive at the human level. 
And so friends, even in this little commentary here, even in these verses that just tell us the setting, in this little commentary, we see a big truth. Jesus is attracting all people because he came to save all people. His geographic influence is not an accidental phenomenon. This is not like the YouTuber from yesterday who just stumbled into viral fame. and He's like, yeah, I meant to do this the whole time. No, you didn't. Took a video of you eating chocolate cake and for some reason you're famous now, right? Isn't it a tragedy, right? I'm not going to go there. This is not Jesus. Jesus, he's doing this because this was his plan all along. He has come from the very beginning to save all people, to bring all peoples into the family of God, to give the good news to all people groups. He is a universal savior. Friends, I don't know where you're at this morning, but I'm telling you, whatever your background, whatever your situation is, the man at the sea is the answer to your questions. What you are looking for, what your soul is longing for, I don't know what it is, but I'm telling you this, he's the answer, whatever the question is. And the crowd knew it. He's drawing a geographic influence. And if Jesus is with us today, East Point Church, If we are preaching Jesus, if our message to our community is this same Jesus, should we not still be having a geographic influence and not just a demographic one? Right? If this Jesus is being proclaimed, if this is the gospel that is being proclaimed, then should we not also expect people of every color and of every language to come near and to hear it and to have their hearts be moved just like it's been happening since the beginning? You see, what happens is churches, they start to proclaim a brand of Christianity. They start, they start preaching their own preferences and their own particular traditions of a subculture. And when that happens, we start to produce country club churches because we're all the same. But here, Jesus, he's building a universal church. If we proclaim the gospel in this community, if we faithfully share the person of this Jesus, then we can expect to have a geographic influence like him. To see people in this community from different cultures, from different ethnicities, from different generations, from different backgrounds, from different economic classes. Jesus is universally appealing. His message reaches everyone at a fundamentally human level. And so as we see this, friends, as we see even the diversity of our own church grow, get excited because a geographic influence is evidence of the presence of our Savior. Diversity is evidence that Jesus is with us. And so here at East Point, our hope is that his goodness, that his beauty would be seen and savored by all. That it would be heard from every corner of our region that Jesus is meeting people in the community known as East Point Church. So here we are, Jesus, he's drawing a crowd, and we've seen the makeup of this crowd, but what's the motive of the crowd? Why are they gathering? What is it that Jesus is doing that is leading them to flock to him in such numbers? Well, it says right here, the great crowd heard all that he was doing. Jesus is changing lives. Jesus is making a difference in people's lives. 
He's offering something that the religious establishment never did. There is something refreshing. There is something life-giving and relevant for those who had only ever known the harsh and lifeless tradition of their leaders. You see, this crowd, all they had known was the moralism and the hypocrisy of religion. And Jesus arrives and he changes everything. This man at the sea has changed everything. Look what he's done. He shows up and it says here that he has healed many. So Jesus comes to those who were sick. He comes to those who are paralyzed. He comes to people lying on their deathbeds. He comes to those who are blind. He reaches and touches out to people who are ostracized by their conditions and he heals them. And you see, friends, not only is he touching their bodies, not only is he healing their infirmities, he is revealing God to be a shepherd who actually cares for people. By coming into the sheep pen and binding up their wounds and taking care of their brokenness, Jesus is revealing that God is like a physician who cares for the broken. He's revealing that God is like a shepherd who cares for his sheep. And these people, all they had ever known was the dead religion. And they see Jesus and they learn what God is like. And they say, yes, please. And they crowd around him. Look what else he's done. Not only has he healed them, it says that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him. Evil bows in the presence of Jesus. He's changing everything. He shows up and he is confronting and triumphing over evil and darkness. Here is humanity's champion against evil. And so the demonic forces who harass humanity, they are forced to flee at his arrival. And you can just picture the people in the crowd, those who are weary, those who are oppressed, those who are tired of evil, they look to the champion king and they say, yes, please. Yes, please. There are a lot of people in this room, many of you remind me of this crowd. You grew up in church. You knew the stories. You went through the motions. You had every Sunday with mom and grandma at church. You memorized the stories. You knew it all. But it didn't make a difference, did it? going through the motions, checking the boxes. But it didn't touch the parts of your life that needed touching. Many of you in this room, you were hurt by leaders in the church growing up. You were disgusted by duplicity. You were tired of feeling like you were failing at religion. You became tired of being scared by this picture of a scary God. And there came a point in your life where you walked away and you said, that is irrelevant, dead, and lifeless. No thank you. Just like the crowd. But maybe you're here because there came a moment in your life, like the crowd, where you met Jesus. And you met genuine followers of Jesus. You heard the gospel preached and proclaimed in a way that, friends, it's like light bulbs are going off. Just like the crowd, you find it attractive. You start to understand the beauty and the simplicity of this gospel message. And you start to realize this is so much different than that. And like the crowd, you have said, yes, please. 
Yes, please. I don't know all that other stuff. I don't understand. I don't know the religion part. I, I wasn't good at it growing up. But I, if this is what it's all about, if this is Jesus, if this is what God is like that I'm seeing in Jesus' face, I want him. Yes, please. Yes, please. That's where the crowd is at, friends. That's what the crowd is like. And so what, what would it have been like to be in that moment, huh? How many of you would love to be on that beach, right? You thought the concert was cool? You thought going to a Mets game with 40,000 fans when they're about to win the World Series was cool? Friends, imagine being on that beach. What a moment. What energy. What excitement. But here's why today's passage is critical. Because we're about to realize that Jesus is not here for the moment. He's building a movement Jesus is not here to stoke the excitement of the crowd. He's here to inaugurate. He's here to start something. He's building something that will last long after his time on earth is done. He's not creating a moment. He's building a movement, something that would eventually extend to every corner of the globe and reach every people group. And so Jesus, get ready. He's about to leave the crowd. Jesus is about to leave the crowd on the beach, and he's going to go do something else. And we're like, why would you do this? It's because he's about to change the course of human history. Look what he does in the last half, the second half of our verse. He leaves the crowd on the beach, and look what he does. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You see, Jesus, he drew a crowd. But now, Jesus calls a core from the crowd. Jesus calls a core from the crowd. We see him leave the busy beaches. He leaves where the crowds are gathering, and he ascends up on the mountain. Now, biblically speaking, I'm going to give you some, some fun facts here. Whenever you see one of God's leaders ascend a mountain, get ready, all right? It's like in the movie theaters when the lights go low and the screen gets bright and like, shit, it's about to start. Whenever you see Jesus go up on a mountain, it's about to start, all right? He goes up on a mountain. Light bulbs go off on mountains, friend. In the Bible, God reveals himself on mountains. Perspective and clarity about God's plan come on mountains. And so here he goes. He ascends up on a mountain. It's about to start. And what does he do on the mountain? He called to him those whom he desired. He calls individuals. Calls them by name. He selects them to leave the crowd, to, lead the to leave the excitement of that moment. And he calls them away and he says, join me. Join me. Now we know that Jesus has been calling disciples since chapter 1, remember? Remember he's walking on the boardwalk and he's like, yo, Peter, Andrew, James, John, with me. He's been calling disciples. We know by the end of this, there will be hundreds of people who can be called his disciples. And well, by the time we get to the book of Acts... 
So he's not just calling disciples here. There's something specific. There's something special that he's doing. This is a special role for individuals that he is about to call apostles. Apostles. What is he doing? Why did he leave the crowd for this? Why did he leave the beach for this? Well, our first clue comes here when we see the number. Look what he did. He appointed 12. Where have we seen God's leader ascend a mountain before and address 12? Where have we seen a man of God go up on a mountain and call out to 12? Moses. Immediately we think of Moses, right? When you hear 12, don't you think of the tribes of Israel? 12 is the number that makes us think of God's people. And so here's what's crazy, friends. By hearkening back to Moses here, by hearkening back to the 12 tribes of Israel, God is making a remarkable statement to the watching world. What God is doing here is nothing less than what he's been doing since then. Listen to me, friends. What God is doing right here on this mountain is nothing less than what he's been doing since the beginning. He is building a family. God is establishing a people. There's continuity here with the plan that started thousands of years ago. He is still putting together a people, 12, all of them, to which he can say, I will be your God and you will be my people. And as he selects 12, all right, such a powerful statement that he's still building a people. As he selects the 12, we realize that those who are in God's family, those who worship God, are those who follow his son. And so here we go. He selects 12. 12 leaders of this movement. 12 individuals who are the embryo. He's forming the embryo of what is about to evolve into this full-blown movement called the church. And he selects 12. What's their job description? What is he calling these 12 to do? Two things. Number one, he's called them to be with Jesus. That they might be with him. The first call of discipleship is not to go and do. It's to come and be. He says, come and be with me. Come and sit at my feet. Come and know me. Come and walk with me. Hey, come, learn my ways. Be my student. Let me transform you into my image. Come to be with Jesus. That's shocking. That should surprise you because the word apostle literally means sent one. Apostle means sent one. So like, you know how we say you're a man with a mission? You look like a man on a mission, right? You've heard that? That's what apostle is. They are men with a mission. And so when we look at their job description, don't you expect to just hear the mission? You're apostles, so what are you going to go and do? No, no, no. First and foremost, come and be. You see, friends, the effectiveness of your going will never exceed the consistency of your coming. The effectiveness of your going will never exceed the consistency of your coming. Before they are sent, they are first called to come. And so tell me, are you taking time to be with Jesus? Nah, but I'm really busy and I do a lot and I serve and I'm doing all these things and I give. Are you taking time to be with Jesus? 
Are you daily sitting at the feet of your Savior? Are you spending time with him, not to earn his love, but to revel in his love, to listen to him, to let him change you? The first call is to be with him. And then, as the overflow of that first thing, we see the second part of their role description is to be sent out by Jesus. They are called to be with Jesus, and they are called to be sent out by Jesus. What is he going to send them out to do? The same things that he did. He wants them to perpetuate his ministry. And so Jesus, he was a traveling preacher. And so he tells them, now it's your turn. I want you to go and preach. I want you to go with this message that I'm giving you. And I want you to proclaim it to the ends of the earth. Tell everyone what God is like. Tell everyone that the kingdom is here and that the king is calling. Tell everyone that God is not sitting up in heaven angry at them, waiting to pay them back for their sins. No, he's like the father who is saying, come home to his creation. Tell everyone that all they have to do is turn and come to me, and I will bring them into his family. Preach! Tell them. But he doesn't just send them out in word. He doesn't just send them out with a message He sends them out in power. He says, you are to go in action, in demonstrations of power. You are to have authority over evil. Confront evil. Go and oppose demonic darkness. Friends, I know you know this, but let me remind you. There is evil in our world. There is darkness in our world. When we call it demonic, we're not just talking about exorcisms and holy water and demonic possession. When we call it demonic, we are saying that this is a darkness that can only be understood as being birthed in and belonging to the realm of demons. Exploitation of the vulnerable. Manipulation and oppression of the weak. Anti-justice. Injustice. These things are anti-God. They are not of God in heaven, so we're not going to call them godly. They are of the devil, the enemy of God and his people. Those kinds of things in this world, they're not perpetuating God's ways. They are perpetuating the way of the demonic. And so Jesus, he says to them, go. Go and take back ground. Go and confront evil. And just as the shadows of the darkness retreat in the presence of the rising sun in the morning, so too the darkness in Talbot County should be retreating in the presence of God's people and their spreading geographic influence. We have authority. We have been sent to boldly confront evil in the name of our king and to authoritatively take ground for him. And so you're sent into your public schools. You're sent into your workplace. You're sent into your neighborhoods. You're sent into your family. You're sent so that the light and the influence of God's kingdom would be gaining ground and taking territory back. To be with Jesus and to be sent by Jesus. And so who does he call? Who gets this invitation? Well, it says it here that he appointed the twelve. And some of these names we know, don't we? How many of you have ever heard of Simon? They changed his name to Peter. Jesus said, Simon, not bad. I'm going to give you a new name, Peter. You know what Peter means? Petros, the rock. 
You thought Dwayne Johnson was cool, huh? You thought he was original. No, the original rock. Do you smell what the rock is cooking right now? He says, Peter, you will be the rock. You will be one of the leaders of God's people, and I'm going to build my church on you. We know James and John, right? The hot-headed brothers that he called out of the boat, the people that were so angry at Jesus' enemies. They say, hey, do you want me to call down thunder and lightning from heaven right now to smite them? And Jesus is like, that was dark. Uh, (laughs) Easy killer, you know? We know James would go on to lead the church in Jerusalem. He would be martyred in the book of Acts. John, the beloved. These three, Peter, James, and John, formed the inner three of Jesus' disciples. We know about Matthew. They changed his name from Levi, the tax collector. Remember we learned about him? And he left his old ways, and he would go on to be a great influence among other tax collectors. And I just imagine him getting baptized. He's like, man, that Levi guy is so dead. He is so far gone from what Jesus has done for me that I'm changing my name. I'm no longer Levi. I'm Matthew. And he would go on to write one of the gospel accounts. What if we did that? We start baptizing people, and we just give them new names, right? You're like, Chad, not anymore. Thaddeus. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Just my name, and then there's like my East Point name. I don't know. I don't know. We'll think about it. We'll think about it. Who else we know here? We know Thomas. I don't know if we can call Thomas famous as much as infamous, right? The only thing we know about Thomas is where we get the phrase doubting Thomas. He didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and he had to repent because Jesus is like, hey, let's have some show and tell. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I believe you now, right? Who else do we know? We know Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. Do you think Mark writing a few decades after this, was tempted to just call it the 11 disciples? You think he was tempted to strike this guy's name from the record? The fact that he didn't is proof that the Bible you're holding is accurate. Right? There's some people out there that want you to believe, well, you know what? The Bible was written like hundreds of years later, and, and like it was written by men who just wanted to make themselves look good. There ain't nothing that looked good about this, right? Like if this wasn't historically accurate, they would not include this. No, they they include Judas. This is real. And not only does it prove the historicity of the Bible, it also reminds us that this movement that Jesus is building is not a utopian society. It's a human society. Humans are messy. Humans make mistakes. You're going to be hurt in this movement. You're going to be betrayed in this movement. But it's here. This is the movement. So that's six. Six of the 12 we know something about. That's 50% of the people that we don't know anything else about. 50% of the original 12, 50% of this foundational core upon which Jesus is going to grow his church, 50%, they're not mentioned virtually anywhere else beyond this. What? Did they underachieve? Did their book not make it in through the publishers? Are their famous deeds just not as well? What is it about those 50%? Should they not have done more? That blows my mind that six out of the 12 original founding disciples are not more famous. 50%. But you know what that tells me, church? That tells me that some of the greatest work in the kingdom, some of the most important work in the kingdom, is being done by people you will never hear of. I have people ask me all the time, who are some of your favorite preachers? You know what I say? I say, I would tell you, but you've never heard of them. 
Some of the greatest work in the kingdom is being done by people you have never heard of. More often than not, God is accomplishing his work. He is doing something significant through those who serve faithfully out of the spotlight without any recognition. And so how many of you in this room would say you want to make a difference for Jesus? How many of you want to do something that would make God smile, something that he would be pleased with? I'll tell you what, friends, seek to be faithful, not famous. Seek and strive with your life to be faithful, not famous. You don't need to be famous. In this movement, there's only room for one famous person, and his name is Jesus. Be faithful. Serve Jesus. Literally do whatever your hands find to do with the gifts that he's given you on the job that he's called you to do. And I'll tell you this, if Facebook never hears about it, (laughs) if Instagram never sees it, if Twitter never tweets about it, God still sees it. And if hundreds of years from now, if the Lord is still tarrying and nobody doesn't know your name, (laughs) you'll be in good company. Seek to be faithful, not famous. So here we have it, friends. We saw Jesus draw a crowd, and then we see him call a core. But why did he do this? Jesus, why didn't you just stay with the crowd? Do you know how many people would kill for those kind of numbers? Do you know how many of the religious leaders would give their left leg to have that kind of influence? Why did you leave the crowd? Why was that not enough for you? Why did you insist on building a core? Well, you see, in this passage, Jesus is showing his hand. He's revealing his playbook. When Jesus was on earth, as he traveled around, his ministry was confined to one locale at a time. His ministry was being done one moment at a time. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, he wasn't also in Idumea having a revival service. One locale, one moment at a time. But by pouring himself into those who can represent him, by pouring himself into those who can exponentially expand his mission, who can exponentially perpetuate his influence, he was creating something that would last long after his departure from earth. You see, friends, crowds make for great moments, but followers create world-changing movements. Crowds make for great moments, but followers make for world-changing movements. And friends, you know it already. Jesus is building more than a moment. He's creating a movement. The kingdom is a movement. It's not an event. This is not a tradition you do with your family. This is a movement where the kingdom has come. The rule and realm of God's ways is here. And he has inaugurated it by the arrival of his king. And the king is here. And he's calling to all who might hear him, to all who would dare to believe, come and partake in this kingdom. Come and experience life the way that God designed life to be lived. Come and experience what relationships were meant to be like in the garden. Come and experience what your relationship with your creator was meant to be like in the garden. This is a movement. And we see it here because for the first three chapters, we were awed by the moments. But now we're entering into a part of the book where we realize 
He is pouring himself into these leaders. He is pouring himself into a few because it is about to explode into what is called the church. Because each of these 12 would go on to have 12 that they discipled, who would then go on to have 12 that they discipled. And then down and down and down the line, there would be people who are teaching others to be a disciple, to come and be with Jesus and to be called to be sent out by Jesus. Be with him, be sent by him, and so on and so forth. And exponentially, this movement would grow until 2,000 years later, there's a room in Easton, Maryland, filled with people who were still hearing this Jesus-led, discipleship-oriented kingdom movement. Jesus is selecting a core because Jesus is building more than a moment. He's creating a movement. So here's my question for you, friends. Are you in the crowd this morning? Are you in the crowd? Are you part of the buzz right now? Are you enjoying what it's like and the energy of all these people? And you're close enough to what's happening. You're close enough to this sea of people that it's exciting. And maybe it's even a little bit beneficial to you and you, and you just like to be surrounded by positive energy and good people but you're still on the beach. Are you in the crowd that's chasing the moment? Or are you a part of this movement? Friends, I'm asking you this morning, are you among those followers who come to be with Jesus, who learn from and love him as he changes our lives? Are you numbered among those who go and perpetuate the ways of the kingdom? Those of us who go and confront evil and darkness. Are you among those of us who are proclaiming the good news that the kingdom is here? And sharing the invitation that the king is calling. Are you in the crowd? Are you a part of this movement? And I tell you this with all due respect, right? Jesus is not here to draw you to a light and laser show. Jesus is not here to give you a little dose of wisdom once a week. He's not here to attract a big crowd of high energy and people who feel good more about themselves and just, just I just want to encourage you and then go do your own thing. Jesus is demanding everything. To be his follower will cost you everything but you will gain everything. To be in this movement will demand that you die to your pursuits and your life the way as you know it, but the life that you will gain is eternal life. Are you in the crowd? Are you a follower in the movement? Jesus calls you this morning, those in this room whom he desires he calls you to be with him, to enter the family of God, and to know eternal life. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us Jesus. We thank you that you did not leave us in darkness. You did not leave us to our own devices. But you came. You pursued us. You went on a rescue mission to save us. And so here we are, Lord. We are your followers. We live for Jesus because he has changed us and saved us. Would you continue to grow us, Lord? Would you continue to help us grow as followers? 
Lord, many of us have been followers for years and decades even, but we don't want to stop growing, Lord. So please teach us every day. Teach us and change us until the day we die. And Lord, for those who are in the crowd this morning, give them faith. May they dare to believe that what Jesus is saying is real. May they dare to believe that Jesus is telling the truth and they would come to him and follow him into your family. Lord, we love you so much. We're so grateful that you don't, you don't revolve around us, but Lord, you, you lead us to revolve our lives around you. And so as we prepare to go back to our weeks at home, at work, in our neighborhoods, Father, I pray that you would give us perspective, change us, and help us to realize that every aspect of our lives should be lived in light of this movement. We love you, Father. May your name be glorified forevermore. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.